Well, we're back, and you know what? A month has passed, and hey, stuff's happened. Quite a lot of stuff, actually. And welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. Well, it's good to be back, and thank you for your tolerance, not that you had a choice, during this travel-demanded hiatus. Though, of course, you know, I hope that my esteemed patrons appreciated their various notes from the, the road while I was away, and those of you who are not patrons, well, you can still become a patron and then go back retrospectively and see what I was writing. But anyway, look, given that so much has happened, what I'm planning on doing in this episode is really trying to catch up. So moving through, at some speed, various of the developments of the past month, giving my take, trying to put them in some kind of a context and order, and then in future episodes, perhaps deep dive a little bit more into them. So that's the plan. Let's see how much can be crowbarred into this episode. And, look, we obviously have to start with what on earth is Putin up to? What is his strategy as regards the war in Ukraine? Because we've had the announcement of partial mobilization on the 21st of September, and then we had the annexations of the occupied regions, and indeed of unoccupied parts of the regions, on the 5th of October. And I do think that these two elements have to be basically taken together as one. And, I mean, I've already said this, but I very much feel that they do represent actually something quite, how am I going to put it, psychologically tectonic, in the sense that whether or not Putin would necessarily be willing to admit this to himself, I think we are seeing this shift from a strategy which is geared towards winning to one which is geared towards avoiding losing. And this is what I think the the thinking is, really. At present, given the continued advance of Ukrainian forces, there is a desperate need to hold the line. And this is particularly what, I mean, the annexations were very much about making some kind of statement, hoping that this way it could slightly at least deter, if not Kyiv, at least its Western backers. And it's worth noting, by the way, that, you know, it's it's easy to feel that, in fact, the West doesn't actually have that much agency in terms of shaping Ukrainian policy. And to a large extent, I think that's true. But on the other hand, remember how this looks from the Kremlin's high windows. Remember that, you know, when, when Putin and co. talk about the idea that Ukraine is essentially just a tool of the Anglo-Americans, that Zelensky, the actor after all, is just simply saying the lines he's given to read, I don't think that's just 
propaganda and rhetoric. I think that also reflects a genuine belief. So we may not feel that we have much opportunity to influence Ukrainian policy, but that doesn't mean that Putin doesn't. So I think, again, the annexations, particularly with these rather heavy-handed hints about a nuclear response if there's attacks on Russian soil, were an attempt to try and sort of... uh, give a sense that it was actually going to be dangerous to continue to advance. Not that that actually influenced the Ukrainians in the slightest. And likewise, mobilization is something that obviously Putin had been trying to avoid for so long, because precisely it brings the war forcibly into pretty much every family in the Russian Federation, whereas previously it had been fought by volunteers of one kind or another but also disproportionately drawn from the poorer and ethnically non-Russian parts of the country. So this is why he hadn't wanted to do it. But nonetheless, given that he has had to, again, I think it shows a sense of maybe desperation, or at least certainly that that this is a rather different kind of war. And it's quite noteworthy that uh, he had a press conference after his visit to Astana in Kazakhstan, um, fairly wide-ranging, which is interestingly also it's worth noting that the uh, journalist questions were a little bit, Russian journalists, questions were a little bit less deferential than they tend to be in the past, a little bit more challenging. But in the context of that, as well as giving some useful information about the numbers of people mobilised that I'll come to in a moment, he also made it clear that actually the current goal was to stabilise the line of contact, as he put it. So, in other words, not reconquering or conquering these annexed territories, but just simply to, as I say, hold the line. What's so good about that? Well, look, first of all, it's about denying the Ukrainians the advantage of momentum, which really does does matter in war. Secondly, it's more broadly about trying to basically stave off some kind of risk of a collapse at the front line and major defeats until the rains come. Now, there's sometimes an assumption that winter is a period in which neither side can really carry out major offensive operations. That's not quite true. But in some ways, what we see is actually a series of phases. First of all, there's the autumnal rains, which will indeed turn much of the ground to sticky mud and will make it much, much harder for either side to carry out particular uh, major operations. But then, of course, in in deep winter, then the assumption is that temperatures will get down to the point where the mud will freeze, and once again, the opportunities for offensive operations begins, until, of course, the eventual thaw, and once again, we have mud time. So, from the Russians' point of view, you know, maybe they've got to hold on for, who knows, three weeks, four weeks, no more than that before it becomes harder for the Russians, to phrase for the Ukrainians, to have to carry out the kind of major operations that we've seen around Kherson and from Kharkiv. And to that end, obviously, they've thrown some troops into the front line thanks to this mobilisation. But we shouldn't assume that most, let alone all, of these troops have just done that. Now, again, we have to treat Putin's statistics with a considerable degree of caution. But nonetheless, what he said in Astana was that of the 300,000 men who are going to be mobilised, 222,000 had already been brought to arms. And of those, 33,000 were already currently in, in deployed in units, combat units, and 16,000 were actually in combat operations. 
So, as far as his words are, only 16,000 of the 222,000 are actually involved in, in the, the front line at the moment. Now, that's really quite striking. Even if we assume that there's a degree of fudge, inaccuracy and so forth, it does show that the majority of the mobilised reservists are not currently just simply being thrown willy-nilly into the front line. Enough are, the hope is, to try and replenish badly degraded units and to you know, basically fill some of the gaps in the Russian line. After all, it's a very, very long front line. And if one looks at the Ukrainian success uh, from Kharkiv, it was precisely by the fact that they could move into areas which were almost undefended, with only a handful of second at best tier units there. So really, it, it's about trying to ensure that Ukrainians don't have quite those same opportunities, because even bad troops, by their presence, they inhibit the kind of rapid movement which the Ukrainians had relied on before. But most of these soldiers, and again, if, we, if we're taking Putin's figures, it's about, about 173,000. Um, even if we assume that the 16,000 are not within the 33,000 figure. Anyway, so anyway, most of these troops are not currently in the front line. So where are they? Well, they are going through probably the most rudimentary and basic training. It is pretty rudimentary, not just because of the time that's being allowed, but also because in the Russian system, most training of new recruits and reservists is carried out within combat units by training cadres from those combat units. And these have been run down because all the professional soldiers have been sucked off to go and actually fight in the front. But we, we see other options. I mean, for example, there is a contingent of, tr of Russian troops currently in Belarus. Now, a lot of talk about whether or not this signifies that Belarus is going to come into the war and there will be a sort of a new attack from the north. I think that's pretty unlikely for a whole variety of reasons, not least because Lukashenko needs his army and the ar his army is not happy about this idea. But nonetheless, first of all, the talk, from sure from Moscow's point of view, is intended to try and rattle Kiev to try and get it to shift some of its forces from the current front line to the northern border in order to protect Kyiv just in case. But I have to confess, my suspicion is that the main reason why the Russian troops are there is precisely to use Belarusian training facilities and quite possibly also Belarusian trainers because it's clear that the existing military mobilization structure back in Russia is ludicrously overwhelmed. So what are these troops for? Well, I think the idea is precisely if they can just hold the line through winter, these troops can be turned into reconstituted forces which will give the Russians some kind of potential offensive capability in the spring. Now, let's be perfectly honest, even with some training and so forth, these will be pretty bad troops. They will well, quite possibly be under-motivated, but they will certainly be under-trained and under-equipped, and most of their equipment will be probably half-rusted Soviet-era stuff. You know, again, you know, yes, the Soviets built a lot of kit that the Russians maintained in arsenals, but what is pretty clear is that they didn't necessarily maintain them pretty very well. So just as Ukraine is acquiring a properly 21st century army, Russia is acquiring a properly 20th century army. But still, this will give the Russians a little bit more capacity both in the defence and also on a limited level on the offence. And again, 
I would be very surprised if these were the kind of forces with which the Russians could launch any kind of major operations. But, you know, a little nibble here, a town taken there, that might be within their capabilities. So what's the, what's the end game? Well, look, I don't think for a minute it's that Putin believes that with a, a, a reformed army full of disgruntled reservists, he is suddenly going to sweep across Ukraine. He couldn't do that with his, his proper military, shall we say, so he definitely won't be able to with his fallback military, not least because of Ukraine's retraining and rearmament program. But I think it is essentially that he feels he has time on his side. Or rather, that he has to feel that. You know, this has been a, a long theme that has recurred so often in Putin's thinking. That ultimately, if, if he and his Russia has a strategic advantage, it is its greater will. It is the fact that it is, has the capacity to hold on and outlast its enemies, and if need be, also take options that they wouldn't dare to take. Now, I'm not convinced that it's necessarily true. In fact, I think it's probably not true. But nonetheless, his view, and I said, what else can he do? His view is that given time, he will be able to outlast Ukraine's will to resist, but vastly more important than that, outlast the West's will and capacity to keep arming and bankrolling Ukraine. And this is, for example, what I think was behind the quote-unquote mysterious, explosions that severed three of the four Nord Stream pipelines. This was not a kind of direct attack on the West, because these pipelines were not pumping gas, and in my opinion, were not ever going to be pumping gas anymore. But he was making that point. We have these capabilities. We've, we've hit our own pipeline, so frankly, there's not really much you can do about it. But that shows that we can hit targets like this like the new pipeline that takes gas to Poland, for example, and a whole variety of other un underground, I'm sorry, underwater pipelines, or indeed the subsea cables that the internet uses and other forms of communication, you know, or, or, or the, there are all kinds of different uh, critical national infrastructure targets that Putin could hit, either outside of national territory, or using more kind of covert or deniable means such as cyber attacks, or yes, maybe even by covert attacks on, you know, whether it's supply lines taking military equipment to Ukraine or whatever within NATO borders, which clearly would be a serious escalation to actually carry out an attack on a NATO country. But nonetheless, it's not the quite at the same level as sending bombers to launch missiles at them or whatever. If you find that a half dozen GRU operators have been trying to plant bombs within an arms depot, as, let's not forget, they did in the Czech Republic in 2014 at Vrbětice, well, yes, that's serious, but you are not going to declare war, I think, in that case. So I think really that was a case of Putin trying to show the West that at a very time when we were agonizing over the potential for Russia to use tactical or, as they're more properly called, non-strategic or lower-yield nuclear weapons, that in fact he has many more rungs to his escalatory ladder and that he can do more to basically mess with us 
as well as he is messing with Ukraine with the current campaign to hit uh, particularly uh, power supplies. I think it's already 40% of Ukraine's electricity generation capacity has been destroyed. And that makes a difference as you're coming into a Ukrainian winter. So this is it. Time is his only real ally, I think. You know, once upon a time, I think it was Alexander III, Alexander III, who said, you know, Russia has no allies but its army and its navy. Well, I think Putin must feel that he has few allies except for time. Is this credible? Well, I would say not. But what else can he do? I mean, literally, I think this is the interesting thing. If, if one looks at his options, the annexations in some ways were a case of him burning his boats on the beach, ensuring that there was no way back, that he could not take the option that he couldn't before that point, which is essentially to redefine victory in very, very narrow terms, so that he could basically try and spin what was in effect a defeat as a win. Well, now, I mean, these are officially, according to the Russian state and Russian propaganda, Russian soil. The man who clearly wanted to be the, the modern equivalent of Tsar, well, Prince Ivan the Great, the key figure in the regathering of the Russian lands under Moscow, sorry, the gathering of the Russian lands under Moscow, well, Putin, in many ways, I think, wanted to be the regatherer. He'd already kind of got Belarus, and now it was going to be Ukraine. But even if he can't get all of Ukraine, the bits of Ukraine that he has now declared to be Russian soil, he can hardly give up, I think, and retain any kind of political credibility, and quite possibly any kind of political future. In those circumstances, short of some kind of massive and potentially catastrophic escalation, and yes, that really does mean beginning to go towards nuclear options. What else can he do? This is perhaps not a credible strategy, but I think it's the only strategy he's got at his disposal in terms of what is practicable and conceivable. He's not going to surrender. At least he's not going to surrender unless he's delivered a truly convincing defeat on the battlefield. Nor, I think, is he going to escalate if he can possibly avoid it. Because whatever else one may think, he may not be a pleasant man, but I think he is still a rational actor. His calculations are maybe different from ours. His assumptions, the information he's working on, are quite possibly flatly wrong. But still, there is a rationality there. So in the circumstances, unable to step up, unable to step down, all he can do is step forward and hope that things somehow work out. There's some catastrophic economic problem in the West that something happens that means that he hung on just long enough to be able to take advantage of that. And here's an interesting little parallel when I think of it. In some ways, he is in exactly the same situation as most members of the Russian elite. Obviously, different calculations, but you know, most members of the elite, frankly, are not happy with this war. But the risks in trying to do anything about it massively at present outweigh the risks in just keeping your head down and hoping that somehow, somehow, things work out. Well, that may be rational on a, a micro scale to the individual, but systemically it's not. Systemically, what it means is actually that Russia is grinding itself further and further into a, a deep hole, 
from which it will be difficult to recover. And in some ways, to that extent, I think there's an interesting case study in precisely how that mobilisation was carried out. It was a real mess. And it was a mess that was really quite strikingly demonstrated. I mean, first of all, a lack of proper pre-planning. There's a shock. But again, this is the one thing that the Russian state was actually meant to be quite good at, this sort of massive gigantism and state planning, in some ways as a sort of carryover from Soviet times. But no, as usual, it seems to be a last-minute scramble. And in that context, particularly in the early weeks, I mean, it was so clear that although the military clearly had hoped that they would get the kind of reservists who would have the most impact on the battlefield. In other words, people in their mid-twenties recently done their national service so they can still remember the dangerous end of a Kalashnikov, people who are still relatively fit. But no, instead we got the crudest and crassest of quota-driven sort of general sweep-ups as both local authorities and draft boards essentially just you know, grabbed whoever they could regardless of, in some cases, whether they'd even done their military service, but certainly regardless of their, their military utility, and in a way which could almost be calculated to maximise the political impact. So, on the one hand, it is clear that, as usual, a disproportionate number ended up being swept up from the impoverished and obviously non-Slavic in the main regions, which, of course, further exacerbates existing sense of it's not fair, we're the ones being forced to fight Moscow's war. But on the other hand, enough people were also swept up from Russian regions to create what can only be described as widespread panic. There were protests and there were literally hundreds of thousands of people, generally speaking, you know, able people, younger people, people with transferable skills, who just left the country to avoid being sort of called up. And this actually ended up to not just leading to sort of chaos and a, frankly, a rather dysfunctional attempt to sort of gather military capacity, but also even to economic problems. Um, the Central Bank of Russia's research department, and it's worth noting after all, the Central Bank is very much one of the real bastions of the technocrats who have serious qualms about this war overall. Anyway, you know, it's... The research department noted that actually this, the mobilisation, was what stalled economic recovery in September. Now, okay, one might think of economic recovery in the midst of sanctions is always going to be a fairly limited process. But actually, September has shown a lot of these chickens coming home to roost. And the interesting thing is, obviously in part, the mobilisation directly affected productivity, particularly in taking workers out of factories and other enterprises. And it's one, this is one of the areas where actually a lot of local governors were expressing serious concerns and trying to exempt key figures from particular enterprises from mobilisation, with varying success, depending, frankly, on whether or not they had much political pull and whether or not the enterprises were directly military-related. But in many ways, I think actually the stall in economic recovery was more to do with the flight of people who were afraid of being mobilised than the actual mobilisation itself. Remember, the, the total mobilisation figure is 600,000, which took some time. I mean, even, even by mid-October, it hadn't quite been reached, even though very recently Moscow has announced that it met its quota and therefore is stopping any further mobilisations. That's Moscow the city, not Moscow as a term for the central government. 
Um, but on the other hand, the number of people who have fled is probably at least double that. So one way or the other, mobilization and the panic it has created has probably taken about a million people out of the workforce. And although a million people out of the workforce of a country with a population of more than 140 million may not sound much, it is clearly the case that it's disproportionately, well, disproportionately seems to be my word of the day. Anyway, disproportionately economically active people with particular skills. I mean, like some people have been saying that, for example, one in four of all IT workers are out of the country now. And it's worth noting, actually, how Armenia has suddenly suffered a great, suffered, experienced a great sort of jump up in GDP growth. And to a large extent, that is precisely because Armenia is one of the places where Russians can travel without visas. And there has been an influx of people bringing their businesses with them into Armenia. So Armenia's humanitarianism in this respect is Russia's loss. Uh, serves Moscow right for not treating it properly during the uh, war with Azerbaijan. Now, why did the mobilization go so badly wrong? First of all, just the usual dysfunctions of this system. People were just looking to kind of fill quotas as quickly and easily as possible, rather than being at all discriminating. Secondly, there was an element, in my opinion, of... I don't necessarily want to call it deliberate sabotage, but certainly a lack of commitment to the conflict, and therefore, particularly on, the, on a local level, people just basically not wanting to, to be bothered to spend too much time on it which is in some ways just simply another way of, of, of talking about this sort of quota syndrome. But I think not just purely out of laziness, but also to a degree out of a kind of passive resistance to the war. And I think that's really important because there's so much focus made, put on active resistance. You know, why are Russians not protesting? Well, the answer is because the National Guard will give them a damn good kicking and then the police will go and take them, take them off and, and rape them in a police station. Okay, I'm caricaturing. But these are the kind of real fears that that people will have. Instead, in these kind of situations, actually the resistance is going to be passive and it's going to be social. The same way as in late Soviet times, a lot of people resisted by basically doing their jobs badly and getting drunk and not caring. Well, I think we, we are beginning to see that beginning to emerge also in, in Putin's system as well. Beyond that, though, I think there's a final element to the mobilisation, which, again, is a distinct lack of coordination on the part of, of the government. And again, is this in part because actually so many of the technocrats don't support the war? I, a little bit. I don't know. 10%, 20%? Mainly it's precisely because of systemic dysfunctions. And I'm going to come on to that right at the end of this podcast, but I just wanted to kind of flag that up now. This is a system which, one way or the other is finding more and more grit in the cogwheels of the state. And frankly, the people whose job it is to fix it are increasingly less able or less willing or don't have the kind of institutional firepower that they needed to actually do the job. And I think that is one of the under-discussed issues. Rather than looking at the the high-profile stuff at the top of the system and policy and so forth, it's actually how far is this a system which is losing its way and losing its capacity. But anyway, if I'm talking about losing my way, maybe it's time for some lemon tea and a break. Speak to you all soon. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. 
And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Of course, after mobilisation and after annexation, as if that wasn't enough, on the 19th of October, we had the announcement with two presidential decrees of martial law. And a martial law which was variegated, but in effect nationwide. Although the clear, sort of the, the real focus was on the occupied regions and also on adjacent Russian regions, in practice, some form of the special new regimes apply across the entire country. And that's a really interesting development. I mean, wh- why is that? Is it because Putin is worried that there's going to be some kind of you know, mass risings or that uh, there's going to be a huge Ukrainian terrorist campaign or similar? I'm not convinced that that is the case. It certainly is a part of it, but I think it's more, first of all, about a shift towards a proper mobilization state. I mean, this is what we are seeing creeping in bit by bit in the economy, in society. That sense of the war becoming, in effect, the central task of government and thus the central task of society. Now, it's interesting because obviously right at the beginning when there was the invasion, the hawks like Patrushev were very much pushing for uh, essentially a militarization of the economy at that stage. And although Putin at first was, was tempted, the technocrats were able to push back and convince him that instead, no. Because after all, remember, this was only going to be a short, quick, easy little war. No, of course, they didn't need to distort the entire Russian economy and society for that reason, and that therefore they should try and continue to keep business as usual. Well, the business-as-usual model is looking increasingly under pressure. And it is clear that this, this current situation is going to continue, I wouldn't say indefinitely, of course, but for a long time. Because even if the fighting ends, the sanctions, or at least the overwhelming majority of sanctions, will continue. And therefore, Russia will continue to, as it would describe it, and I think describe it rightly, as being at war with the West of some kind, a certain sort of war, a non-shooting war, but an economic, political, social, cultural, etc. one. So in, in those circumstances, bit by bit, we are seeing, I mean, I could emotively call it the North Koreanization of Russia. That overplays it. But certainly you know, a shift to a war-fighting state economy. Because remember, in times of total war, Every society, I would suggest, basically becomes an authoritarian socialism. And this, for the Russians, is, I think, something of a new kind of total war. So I think that's part of it. But I think it's also an attempt to convey to society as a whole that sense of of jeopardy, that sense of the grandeur of the struggle, the need for everyone to be all in, for everyone to be involved. It is in some ways an attempt to always create a positive flip side to the society-wide fear that mobilization created. It is that sense of saying, yes, this war does touch you, and that's a reason why you therefore have to rally around the flag. It was quite interesting that uh, first deputy head of the presidential administration, Sergei Kirienko, who has reinvented himself as an exceedingly hawkish hawk, well, in Rasiska Gazeta, um, there was a, a piece on 
or today, Saturday, uh, about his remarks at a teacher's forum, which you might not necessarily think being, would be a place to unveil great policy initiatives or make grand statements. But nonetheless, I think it is quite important. He said, this is a battle for the future, which on one level, yes, familiar rhetoric, but I think it, it does actually genuinely convey the thinking at, at the top of the system. That this is not just about um, the future of the world order, it is also about Russia's future as a truly sovereign great power. But in particular, he said that you know, a war with NATO, which is clearly what this is, you know, in this war with NATO, Russia will definitely win. But then he said, and this is, I think, uh, worth quoting directly, but for this, the war must become truly popular. Now, popular, of course, has two meanings, two implications. One is a people's war that everyone has to be involved with, but also one that everyone actually is enthused about and committed. And it's quite clear from the way that Rosicka Gazeta reported it that actually a heavy emphasis was on the latter. Now, why I am belaboring this point is this speaks to a current and constant debate as to what the Russians think about the war. And to a large extent, that, that's become something of a Rorschach inkblot test, that those people who basically are happy to consider the Russians to be orcs, to be nasty imperialists, or to be subservient drones of Kremlin autocracy, will clearly talk up the idea that all Russians are essentially supportive of the war, and they will fasten on those opinion polls which show people saying generally, yes, I'm, I'm supporting the current policy. Conversely, those who, and I unashamedly place myself within that number, actually think that Russians are people who are not, uh, you know, Tolkienian evil monsters, and who are frankly trying to operate within an increasingly dangerous and constrained environment. It's all very well saying Russians should be protesting. Unless you are the kind of hero who is willing to be beaten with a rubber truncheon in the name of that protest, even though you may feel that it would be entirely futile. And I very much doubt that in those circumstances I would not be that kind of a hero. But unless you're that sort of person who can, who can really demonstrate that, that, that you've earned that right to be so critical of the Russian people, I think one has to be a little bit humble and appreciate the constraints in which they operate. But nonetheless, I don't get the sense that there is any kind of, of, of mass support. It's not just simply individuals who, out of their own self-interest, want to avoid being mobilised, who therefore flee the country. You know, it is a fact that, for most people, the sense is you may not be happy with what's going on, you may not be quite sure what's going on, though the room for ignorance is narrowing. But mainly, you just don't feel you can do anything about it and think it would be extraordinarily dangerous to you. And it's worth noting to your family to, to try and do so. And, you know, those of us who believe this, well, we also can find opinion poll data that, that, that is in support of this. You know, showing a majority who would actually want to see peace with Ukraine. But this actually suggests that, in some ways, Kirienka is is on our side. He is actually admitting in this as he exhorts teachers to basically become propagandists, to become, in the old Bolshevik phrase, engineers of the human soul, who will actually therefore craft a generation of loyal patriots. And I use the word patriots in the Kremlin terms because I think actually there's nothing patriotic about Putin. Well, 
he himself is basically admitting that this is not a popular war. And that, more to the point, the Kremlin needs it to become popular if it is to have any chance of success. So I think this, it's, it's, this is much more sort of complex than, 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 than just simply an excuse to be able to crack down on those people who, frankly, it cracks down on anyway. As I say, it's, there's, there's a varied levels of, of martial law applying across the country. And just as with COVID, in effect, two fairly competing structures have been set up to try and uh, coordinate and impose this. You have a committee which is run by Prime Minister Mishustin, and then you have another body under Moscow Mayor Sabyanin in his capacity as chair of the State Council Committee for uh, Local Government. Now, the interesting thing is, again, you, you've got this sort of pretense that this is actually about empowering the regions. I mean, that's very much how, how the decree is framed. It's that local authorities now have the right to do various things, whether it's forcibly resettle people or impose curfews or whatever, if they, if they see fit. And I think most interestingly of all, actually, is the clause which in large parts of the country actually allows local authorities to, in effect, bring enterprises under direct control if they begin to challenge the interests of the military and the state, which could well, well mean that, for example, if workers start to strike, that can be treated as essentially treason, but also that let's say, if a local newspaper or, or other media outlet continues to say things that the locals don't like, it can essentially be brought under direct state control. So there, it's, it's, it's very much it's an enabling act. But of course, the point is, the governors are under pressure to use these capacities in the way the Kremlin wants. Just as with COVID, Putin is trying to hide behind the governors. And in this respect, Sabianin's role is particularly interesting. Because Sabianin has emerged as a kind of uh, representative of the sort of quiet resistance that you can find amongst the technocrats. That, yes, he does what he has to do. There's no question about that. He raises his volunteer battalions when he needs to. He oversees mobilization. He, in fact, but in, indeed, he shows that he's actually a, a good um, representative of the state in that he's actually put money from the Moscow city budget into providing support for the families of those who are mobilised and that kind of thing. But at the same time, he's very much steered clear of making the kind of bombastic statements in support of the war and framing it as this uh, grand civilizational struggle that, 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 that some of his counterparts has. You know, he basically has come as close as possible to registering distaste for the whole kind of uh, you know, Z-mania of, of this whipped-up propaganda campaign. Now, in this role, actually, he can't really do very much to force governors to comply. He doesn't have the powers. I mean, that's very much going to have to be, if anyone's job, it'll be Mishustin's job. But I can't help but wonder that also, quite possibly, he won't want to try and impose it. Because in his role, he has the capacity not so much to be the foreman trying to impose the boss's will, but actually to be the shop steward representing the views of the workforce, in this case governors and mayors, to the boss, Putin, Mishustin, the government as a whole. And therefore, I think this is going to be one of the, again, interesting things to be watching, and it's something I'm going to talk about in more detail in a future podcast, is precisely the relationship now between the Kremlin and the regions, and particularly regional 
administrations which do feel, I think, that the Kremlin has broken its social contract with them. That it expects them to basically, you know, yes, enrich themselves, but do the Kremlin's bidding. But in return, it will not make their lives impossible. And I think there is a sense amongst many that it is making their lives impossible. And we've seen some people trying to push back. Um, the governor, for example, the head of, head of government in Dagestan, for example, which, and let me use my word, has disproportionately provided fighting men into the war so far, and thus also, therefore, absorbed casualties coming back. When mobilization started, he actually petitioned to be allowed to basically be given a, something of a, of a moratorium, given exactly how many Dagestanis were already in the front. He was, I could politely put it by saying, um, overlooked, but you know, frankly, he was clearly snubbed and ignored. So you know, th there are governors who are actually trying to fight for their regions because they need to, because that's the only way they can actually have any kind of traction on local politics, and yet the Kremlin is not really allowing them to do their job. So I think martial law is going to be an interesting thing to watch. And you know, there is this fascinating historical parallel. Under late Tsarism, particularly from the 1905 revolution, there was a creeping imposition of two kind of martial law type provisions, so-called reinforced guard and extraordinary guard, that bit by bit was imposed over more and more regions of the Russian Empire and never really was it ever lifted. And therefore, by 1917, actually almost all of Russia was extraordinary. In other words, almost all of Russia was under one of these sort of provisions. So you know, the Tsarist state hadn't imposed martial law, except bit by bit, jigsaw piece by jigsaw piece, it in effect had. And we know how effective that was. We know how it led to the long and happy reign of the Tsars, until it didn't. So there is not a good historical parallel for this. It actually suggests a concern, a fear of the country as a whole, as well as a desperate attempt to try and whip up a degree of patriotic fervor. And I'm not convinced that either of those really are showing any signs of success. Of course, all this time, you know, we should remember that it's all very well talking about Putin's plans and so forth. You know, Russia is not the only side, or the Kremlin is not the only participant who has agency. As we saw, again, with another event of this past eventful month, with the attack on the Crimean Bridge. And I just want to talk very briefly about this, because, again, obviously it was, although the Kremlin tried to play it down, clearly a shocking development for them. It's worth noting, after all, that on one level, Crimea is incredibly heavily defended. But on the other hand, it may well also prove to be phenomenally vulnerable. You know, it does depend on either very fragile land connection routes along the so-called sort of land, you know, Crimean land bridge in occupied parts of Zaporizhia along the northern coast of the Sea of Azov. Or else it depends on ferries, which are also vulnerable now that the Ukrainians have more better and more accurate long-range firepower. Or, of course, it depends on the bridge. And the bridge is the main source of forces being sent into Crimea, either for Crimea's sake or else to reinforce areas like Kherson, uh, and also all kinds of military materiel, ammunition, fuel, you name it. Crimea could, I think it's entirely possible, be in effect blockaded by the Ukrainians through long-range firepower, 
which would actually mean that you know, the, the actual presence of forces and troops and missiles and guns on the peninsula might well matter increasingly less. So there is clearly a, a vulnerability there. But what I particularly wanted to dwell on just briefly was what Zelensky told um, a Canadian TV channel recently. I mean, after, obviously, immediately after the uh, attack, there was a considerable degree of satisfaction, even triumphalism, in Ukraine. And a lot of kind of nod and a wink, oh, who knows who it could have been sort of thing. Since then, there has been a bit of a sort of stepping away from that, I think in part to try and not give Russia further casus belli. And we had Zelensky saying, we definitely didn't order it, as far as I know. Now, this could easily just be misdirection. I mean, let's be honest, the Ukrainians have been playing very competent, often, uh, information operations against the Russians, and there's been this claim that, oh, no, no, it was actually because of internecine squabbles within the Russian security forces, which, I've got to say, I do not accept for one microsecond, or else that it was some kind of terrorist attack. Um, you know, we still have this, this interestingly disquieting um, possibility that actually the Ukrainians arranged it with a dupe driving the truck who had no idea what he was driving and the fact that it was going to be detonated at a strategic moment. If so, I mean, that would be a very definite break with past practice and, and quite, a, quite a worrying one. So it could just simply be misdirection, that of course the Ukrainians did it, but they're just not going to admit it and they would rather keep the Russians guessing. But on the other hand, as far as I know... I mean, is this also actually a sign of some degree of lack of control? We've already, after all, had a hint towards that with the leak of the American intelligence assessment of the assassination of Daria Dugina, daughter of ideologue Alexander Dugin. At the time, I mean, I remember, I, mean, I, I actually really wasn't sure. I thought it was hard to believe that the Ukrainian state would go after Dugin, let alone Dugina, if they were going to launch a, an assassination operation on foreign soil. The suggestion from the American intelligence services is that it was not necessarily carried out by the Ukrainian state, but rather by elements within the Ukrainian state, suggesting that this was more of a, a maverick operation. That's something that, again, it's an interesting sign. It's inter something to definitely sort of keep an eye on for the future. How far actually is the Ukrainian war effort, and particularly the more covert and sneaky aspects of it, which are you know, obviously entirely legitimate and central to the, to the war, but actually how far are they being coordinated? This, this will matter more in endgame times rather than anything else. There is a problem, after all, in knowing exactly how this war ends. And the more either side is unable to absolutely guarantee the compliance of all its various actors, agents, and instruments, then the harder that's going to be. So just something to, to flag up, which maybe I'll be talking about in the future. In many ways, to be honest, I hope not. But of course, if there are sub sub-state actors with a certain degree of, of independence in Ukraine, there certainly are in, in Russia. This past month also saw um, the, frankly, sort of 
deluge of negative coverage of the Russian High Command and particularly Defence Minister Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov, also beginning to acquire high-profile sort of, uh, participants, notably Ramzan Kadyrov of Chechnya and Yevgeny Prigozhin of the Wagner Group mercenary organisation. And this inevitably led to a spate of talk about you know, power struggles within the Kremlin and the increasingly bizarre notion that either Prigozhin or Kadyrov might be sort of seeking a, a, a stab for power. Neither of these people, neither of these thuggish outsiders, have any chance of becoming president of the Russian Federation. And also, the idea that forces are being mustered precisely with an idea of fighting it, literally fighting it out for power in Moscow, that you might end up with sort of, you know, skirmishes um, in Red Square somehow determining who becomes the new czar. No, I don't buy that for one moment. But what's interesting is actually to try and sort of break down what, what's going on and what the interests are, but above all, what this means. Because what we had is Kadyrov making a, a very sort of uh, bitter and explicit critique of, of the, the, the military hierarchy, and in particular of what he described as their sort of old boy network style protection of um, General Lapin, one, one of the, the main field commanders. And then Prigozhin jumped in with sort of his enthusiastic support, you know, it's a beautiful Ramzan, um, and, and making it clear that he, he feels that the, the, so basically the high commanders should, should be out there on, you know, fighting on, on the front instead. And this looked like some kind of an alliance. I don't believe it is. In fact, I think one can see some very, very different interests at work. Kadyrov... Look, Kadyrov has a standard MO. I mean, he, on the one hand, he presents himself as the hawkiest of hawks, but above all, he is interested in his own self-interest. And a key element of that self-interest is the massive amounts of money which goes to Chechnya from the federal budget every year. It covers 80% of Chechnya's um, budgetary funds. And that is basically the money that Kadyrov has at his disposal to buy off his elite, to expend on vanity projects, and also to do a bit of uplift in Chechnya itself to keep the country as pacified as possible. Now, the 2023 federal budget envisages, as you'd expect, a lot more spending on the military, a lot more spending on internal security, funds being available to help prop up industries that might otherwise look as if they're failing because of sanctions and the like, and inevitably, well, there has to be a squeeze somewhere. And one of the areas which are going to be squeezed is federal budget subventions to the regions. And I think this is Kadyrov doing what Kadyrov always does when there's any threat to these funds. It's basically making himself inconvenient, kicking up a fuss. Often it's that he starts to speculate, oh, I might retire, I might just become an ordinary soldier or something like that, because he knows full well that the Kremlin, wrongly in my opinion, but nonetheless deeply, believes that without Kadyrov there is a chance of Chechnya exploding into violence, and before you know it, it would also be embroiled in a third Chechen war. Especially, this is not the time for that. So I think in, the, in this respect, this was just simply a different way of Kadyrov making himself inconvenient, and more or less saying to the Kremlin, you need to buy me off, you need to buy my acquiescence, and guarantee that I will not lose in the 2023 federal budget. Prigozhin was happy to capitalise on that, but for his own reasons. 
He has something of a personal vendetta against Defence Minister Shoigu. Um, some reports say they actually came to blows at a meeting in January or early February. I don't think it went as far as that, but certainly it was an extremely acrimonious um, row. He feels that the Defence Ministry doesn't uh, properly respect his Wagner mercenaries, and I think they're right not to. But also, when we had the recent dismissal of the general who was in charge of army logistics, well, actually, as I understand it at least, this general had been, let's put it very, say, very helpful to Prigozhin in securing a succession of lucrative Ministry of Defence contracts. And so when he was sacked, I think from Prigozhin's point of view, it was not just simply that he was losing someone who was a, a useful ally or agent inside the Defence Ministry, but that it was actually a direct move against him. And look, Prigozhin is a man for whom, frankly, vendettas seem to be his, his greatest hobby. So, of course, he was going to jump on this opportunity to, to do that and also raise his profile. So this wasn't actually part of some grand conspiracy. What this really said is two things, in my opinion. First of all, it shows us again just how the Putin system works. That you know everyone has their own areas of responsibility, their own assets, and yet it's a very fluid system. People can constantly can and do try to extend those little fiefdoms to acquire new assets and new responsibilities from others, and also to attack those whom they regard as competitors. Now, on one level, the disparity between Wagner and the Ministry of Defence is massive. But on the other hand, the fact that Wagner has had some sort of high-profile successes, and more to the point, you know, it does represent an alternative source of fighting men that is often competing with the military to try and recruit the best volunteers. Well, I mean, that, that means that, that he does operate, shall I say, in, in the marketplace of organised state violence. And clearly he will try and, just as he does with all his other businesses, extend both the scale and the profitability of, of those businesses. So, you know, he is actually engaged in a, in a market competition with the military. And likewise, you know, from Kadyrov's point of view, you know, his, his, his interests have been not just Chechnya, but the North Caucasus as a whole. But the key thing is he needs to have control over Chechnya, absolute control over Chechnya, which he basically does have at the moment but which is dependent upon him bringing in the money, in order also to be the power base for his periodic attempts to make Chechnya essentially dominant across the North Caucasus region. So you know, this, is a, this is a system which is designed to create competition, horizontal lateral competition. It is a system which assumes that that will happen. Why? Well, for a key reason is this. It gives Putin the opportunity to be the arbiter of all these disputes. He is the person who ultimately can resolve them, who can stop them, who can fan them. And that's been very much a central element of his power, divide and rule, a very old-fashioned principle that still applies today. But the point is that the system has therefore developed that requires the presence of daddy to be the arbiter of all these squabbles amongst his children. And at the moment, Putin is not doing that. Putin is strikingly absent from this kind of domestic politics. He seems to be, A, totally consumed by the war and certain sort of high politics and diplomatic elements thereof, you know, Samarkand, Astana, you know, various other sort of negotiations. 
Um, but B, also just simply have much less will and interest in engaging himself in these, these squabbles and spats. And this is something that people like Mishustin, it's fine, you can, you, you can set them up on commissions and things, but no one has the institutional clout to be able to resolve them in most cases. I mean, sure, minor ones, fine. But when it comes to big beasts, ministers, ministries, security agencies, more powerful amongst local governors, figures such as Prigozhin and other, and also sort of oligarchs and the like, you know, these are not people who can easily be disciplined. And I think the lack of any kind of will and interest in resolving these disputes is again one of these elements of dysfunction that is really causing problems within the system. Again, it's, it's not the open problems. It's the ones that just basically mean that the system works so much less well that issues which needed to be coordinated, like mobilization, simply are not. That issues that need to, to be have some kind of strong hand to ensure that they're used properly, like the martial law decrees, are not. I mean, martial law, wow, what a bonanza that is going to be for the more opportunistic and corrupt local officials. And let's be perfectly honest, almost all of them are opportunistic and corrupt. It needs to have clear control in order to ensure that what it does is for the utility of the state rather than the utility of certain individuals and importers of smuggled high-value consumer goods. But given that Mishustin can't do it, given that Sabyanin won't do it, and given that Putin seems to be absent without leave, I don't think it will happen. So the interesting thing is the more the state is empowered, the more actually that allows actors within the state to damage the state by abusing those powers to their own interests. And again, that is going to be one of the stories that I'm going to be keeping an eye on because I think that is going to be likely one of the, the big long-term impacts of not just the war, but Putin's current turn in strategy. Anyway, there you go. I have cantered at speed through, I mean, only some, let's be honest, of the main developments of, of the past month. Obviously, I will look forward to going in, in more depth into some of them and also looking at some of the more kind of quirky side issues in future podcasts. For the moment, normal service, whatever that may mean, is, is now resumed. And I would particularly want to thank my patrons for their indulgence that, uh, yes, they, they, they received a sort of a, a bunch of often rather short and ill-thought-out posts from various hotel bedrooms and airport departure lounges and the like, and I hope they did find that some kind of uh, recompense for there being no podcasts. But, you know, again, it's, a, it's an obvious point to make. But without you, this podcast might exist, but certainly would be vastly less regular and I would be able to spend vastly less time on it than otherwise. So thank you all very much indeed. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. 
However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Stop, stop, stop,